Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Thanks for your patience. This is Gigi Johnson from Innovating Music. We've had some gaps as we're in the middle of summer term, and I tend to hang out on a UCLA schedule. But also, please enjoy the fact that the podcast is now at radio.com and on Pandora. So you can add that to your listening pleasure. Uh, please share the podcast with those that you might find would find it of interest. Storm Glore and I have been talking about him joining the podcast for some time. We first met when he was the chief wrangler, or I should say the president of MIA, bringing together all sorts of wonderful faculty, teachers, researchers, looking at what's happening in the music industry. But also I kept running into him regarding a bunch of really wonderful music cities research. So please enjoy this conversation with Storm, talking about the wonderful work he's doing at University of Colorado on both the nature of what makes a hit song, what is a hit song, and as well what's happening in music cities from the large cities that we tend to stereotypically think of as music cities down to the local communities and music scenes who are making this work in a streaming era. And we talk a bit about why, why and how streaming impacts those cities. But a lot of it is what makes different groups of people in the city create a music scene and help make it thrive. So enjoy our conversation. So what is your adventure, Storm, and what are the things that you are excited about teaching and researching about right now? Well, right now, it's... Uh it's music cities related um, material that I'm most interested in, in my research. But uh, this has only been in the last uh, several years because prior to that, I am an admitted chart geek. If you know what that is, it's somebody who uh, really goes way too far psychologically in getting fixated on the chart positions of songs on the billboard chart and can talk endlessly about how many weeks something was at number one versus uh, another song that was n number one for fewer weeks and, and what date a particular song peaked on the charts and stuff like that. And so my research prior to that really centered on uh, stuff related to the charts. For, in for instance, I uh, researched um, artists who had hit the album chart over the last 55 years. And that was a study that was conducted around two, 2012 or 13. And I was trying to put some quantity to the uh, concept of one hit wonders. We see artists come and go and we know anecdotally that they are here today and gone tomorrow many times. I wanted a number put to that. So I studied one hit wonders during one of my um, research project. I found that about 48, call it 48 to 50 percent of artists are, will, will be one hit wonders. Wow. At, that is, have one album on the Billboard 
top 200 or one single on the uh, Billboard Hot 100 in their career. But that means about half come back. And was there a concentration then of those who were multiple, multiple hit wonders? Well, uh, yes. And in, in, in fact, the, the big number is seven. If, if, if you can basically get to seven um, placings on the chart, you're probably looking at 20 or 25. In other words, there's a huge gap between those who place seven on the charts and, and those who place, you know, into the 20s. Now, you saw this in 2012 with the hyper streaming environment we're in now. Have you done any updates on that work? Uh, no, I haven't. And I, I, I keep toying with the idea of revisiting it because one thing we've seen as a result of not only streaming, but things that have happened since then, there are so many more artists who can now chart, so to speak. And even at the, uh, in the last few years of my, uh, the, the last few years of data that I had back in 2012, I was already seeing that an inordinate amount, uh, an in, inordinately more artists were charting at the time. So more, this, more diversity, more breadth. Yes, yes. Which my theory is that the percentage, though, was will stay the same. Hmm. Because I, I say that because what I noticed in the, uh, I guess, the longitudinal analysis of my data was that. I said earlier that it's, you know, between 40 and 50%. And that's merely me not remembering the exact number, but it's so consistent in the 1960s. It was about that number in the seventies in the eighties and the nineties. My theory is that it's always going to be about, about 50%, but Interesting. that's why we do research to test those theories. And that's my next so how did you get into this walk of life? Have you always been an academic and researcher and teacher, or is there some other itch that was scratched before that? It was scratched when I was eight years old, and I was in a record store, probably the second or third time I had been in a record store. I was curious why the album that I really liked wasn't selling so well and wasn't you know, doing so well but yet this other album was selling well. So I started walking around record stores trying to see, you know, what's popular and what's not and why. In, in my early teens, I subscribed to Billboard magazine and would study those charts. And I'd listen to Casey Kasem's American Top 40 countdowns pretty consistently. And I'd start trying to predict how songs would do on the charts. Ultimately, that led me to a career in the music retail industry where I was actually paid <laughs> to be good at predicting how, how songs and artists would perform. Were you working for a chain or you were distribution? Or? Yeah, uh, Hastings Entertainment had about 150 stores, mostly in the Midwest. And I was uh, ultimately director of music purchasing and marketing for that company. And uh, I'd worked closely with the record labels, and that gave me a, a lot of insight into what what part of that determination of success was either uh, developed by record labels or engineered by them, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. through through marketing. So 
I was in a sense a kid in a candy store. It's, I, I can say now that I can't believe they paid me to do that. That interest allowed me to meet a lot of people in the industry, of course, and learn a lot that I, beyond just the charts and beyond uh, the marketing side. At one point, I was invited to speak at a university that had a music business program. And before that, I had no idea that this kind of stuff was taught in academia. By my nature, I love to train and teach. And so I felt really comfortable when I got up in front of that, that student group at the university. And it, let, it, was, it was the light that sort of light bulb that went off in my head that education uh, and academia could allow me to combine my uh, passion for teaching and, and helping others learn with, you know, something I was really at heart a geek about. So then how did you get formally geeked up as an academic? <laughs> I, uh, well, it was a series of great coincidences, uh, one of them being that I just happened to pick up a billboard magazine that had an ad for uh, an opening at the University of Colorado, Denver, um, one one day, and I thought, you know what, that's exactly one of the schools that I would love to teach at. I had targeted about five schools when after I decided to make this career change pursuit, I'll call it. Fortunately, everything worked out uh, to where I could uh, assume a, a tenure track position at uh, CU Denver. What is it that is going on on Music Cities, and why are you intrigued by this area? Well, I, I think I became intrigued, actually, when I saw what was happening in Denver several years ago, in that after a study was done here, we, we could see a lot of opportunity here, but yet we learned that Denver has a lot of great things going for it. So I became sort of interested in where we go from here. And in other words, how could some, a scene that's pretty good go to excellent? By doing that and involving myself in, for instance, the Denver Music Task Force and meeting with organizations like Youth on Record and Balanced Breakfast, I saw that other cities had similar initiatives. So certainly I was interested in learning what other cities were doing. Then it became sort of a, a quest uh, in understanding why uh, some cities who you wouldn't think had a thriving music scene or something interesting going on, how they were operating. For instance, El Dorado, Arkansas. I'm originally from Arkansas, and every time I'd go back to that state, I'd hear that El Dorado had some sort of music scene building. And I was like, what? And <laughs> so the more I looked into what was happening there, it was sort of interesting that uh, it's not an if you build it, they will come sort of model, but it's if you get the right pieces in place, there's at least the opportunity with the right focus by the city and by the uh, by organizations who are willing to do the work uh, in making a scene. What is the scene? So when we talk about a music scene, and, mm -hmm. and I say this with a little bit of air quotes around it, <laughs> yeah. there's some research on music scenes, and there's lots of different definitions I've seen of music scenes. What is a music scene? 
Well, I hate to make this analogy, but remember that Supreme Court decision on pornography where they said, I can't, I can't, you know, we can't define it, but we'll know it when we see it. And unfortunately, that's the best analogy I can come up with in terms of the idea of a music and as you did put it in air quotes for a scene. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting that I will talk to my friends again. I'm sorry. I'm making this an Arkansas discussion, but I'll talk to my friends and who live in various cities in Arkansas and they'll go, Oh yeah, we've got a lot of, we've got a great scene happening. And, you know, internally I, I laugh, you know, and think that's not a scene, but to them it is. And that's what's most important is that, uh, the citizens and the community can say they have something on it. And there's another town, which I won't, I won't mention by name, but you know, I hardly think of that town as a, as a, as a having a great music scene, but they say my friends who live there say they do. So I think, I don't think we'll ever have a quantification if that's a word of it. I think the scene is in the eyes of the beholder. But I think you were commenting that from the Denver Music Task Force and other things that there's identifications of the elements that are the fertilizer for the scene. Are there things that you're seeing across across cities, because that's the benefit of the some of the work you're doing, that mm-hmm. that l- helps cities figure what, what's fertilizer, what's a constraint, what is the impact on the city of having a robust music scene or scenes, uh, plural? What, mm-hmm. what are kind of the the foundational elements? Well, I think, uh, you know, what you'll see in, in most, most of these, and, and I think any readings that you access about, you know, identifying the scene and where it is, there has to be a, uh, a sort of infrastructure supporting it in some way. An organization that is, is willing to do a lot of that heavy lifting uh, as opposed to m- m- maybe the government um, and the government leaders and the policymakers. So there has to be that some community, whether it be formal or informal, who's doing the work to uh, on, on the economy there. Um, there of course has to be work is the work. So for instance, San Diego music foundation, a group, you know, I, I remember um, at the, at their sort of conference that called the San Diego music thing a few years ago, they're a group that, you know, is I'm pretty sure they were a nonprofit organization, you know, not sustained by the government necessarily, but a a bunch of musicians and and venue owners and and folks who have an interest, uh, they all get together and, and form that group. And there's, there's similar groups in a lot of cities, as opposed to here in Denver, where we have, um, uh, Denver Arts and Venues, which which does a lot of the work in convening um, artists, in setting up grant programs to help artists. Does that address that differentiation I think you're asking about? A little bit, because um, to a hammer, everything's a nail. So, <laughs> yeah. so when I talk to cities or organizations a lot of them, if they're from city government, they assume it's city government who would take on a role to help, and then it's not their job, or depends on whose job it is. Right. In, in cities, 
uh, out in the community, the nonprofits think it needs to be a nonprofit. Um, and so various folks seem to have single lenses in a lot of conversations I've had informally of thinking that it's, it's somebody's job that looks like them, but not them sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and I know from um, at the Amplify Music in LA conference, um, Merrick uh, did a, a wonderful uh, sort of mini PowerPoint from, from a distance, um, looking at the various cities who've looked at having night mayors. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, and people can see that video via all the stuff at musicinla.org, is that despite the fact that it's a labeled structure, those labels still are all over the place and some of them are non-governmental agencies, nonprofits, community groups. So the, the different varieties are pretty wide, but by saying nightmare, it seems to imply in some people's circles that it's an official part of the city government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just by virtue of that traditional thought. But, you know, I, I think, uh, to probably the last thing you said in the original question on this is the government getting involved in any way, first of all, is it's, it's just not going to be on their list of squeaky wheels, so to speak, as much, or it, used, it, it traditionally hasn't been that their music economy is anything they, A, should uh, focus on or B, need to. And I think what's changed is uh, a lot more. A lot more cities are recognizing what an asset their uh, music and entertainment sectors bring to the cities. I think whether it be as by virtue of Richard Florida's work or any other researchers who have brought this, you know, in the last twenty years to everyone's attention, cities are recognizing more and more what an asset their music and entertainment economies can be. And that may be, uh, Gigi, uh, why between the two, between nonprofits and governments, they're at least seeing that they have a common uh, goal. But do they? At the very they, least. Are they measuring different things, though? I mean, the, the government often yeah, certainly get economic certainly. impact and then is rewarding themselves based on economic impact where you know, different organ and, and have different parts of the government, right? So, yeah. so part of it is because the change has accelerated. I know that Richard Florida has come back on his own work and has said that, well, I was right and I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that having creative forces is a fuel and an early indicator of the growth and robustness of the city. But now it's been painted pretty abundantly with the term gentrification. And those creative forces have create an environment that the folks who already were there in many cases can't afford to live in. Yeah. And so he's actually had a follow-up, uh, a follow-up version of his book. And then one since then that points out the extensive problems with that. Is that some of the reason also that music cities are looking at it because the, the G word, the gentrification part, but that, that mm -hmm. there's, there's a mating of those issues. Uh, certainly, especially in a larger, you know, larger cities. Uh, they're seeing that more. What I found interesting is that um, several cities have their own set of issues. You know, for instance, here in Denver, we've got an extremely large growth. We've experienced a lot of growth in the last couple of years specifically, but we also deal with legalized marijuana mm -hmm. and how that plays into it. 
and then you've got other cities that are dealing with, uh, you know, their own specific issues. But in general, you are correct. You know, from a government standpoint, a government official is, in terms of economic impact, the thing they like to talk about, of course, is jobs. Yeah. You know, how many how many jobs are being created by this? And and that's the that's a talking point that's important to them. And then there's also the data that is, you know, the buzzword these days. And, and well, not necessarily buzzword, it's the necessity these days um, for, for policymakers and the government. So they also want numbers too. And that's what they've got to achieve if anything is to be quote unquote unsuccessful. Well, that also comes back to your own sweet spots of, of enjoying looking at the numbers and how that comes together. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the triangulation between what I did before and what I do now. <laughs> how do people track all this stuff, though? So, so jobs are kind of weird. I know that, that um, we're kind of looking at... Oh, I, I, t- I tell my guests, don't say anything that you don't want other people to hear. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm right now thinking that in my own space. So... Um, we're taking a look at how people look at music jobs that in some organizations that we are working with that they still think of music jobs as performers promoters and record labels and the breadth Mm. and variety and don't really track the rest in a lot of cases or don't know how Mm. to talk about that to younger people but we're finding a lot of groups are not tracking the really wide breadth of available jobs in this changing music industry. Are you mm-hmm. seeing cities that are doing a good job with that or organizations that are doing a good job with the breadth of the often on stage music work? Uh, no, I am not, but it's not, it's, it's more a fault of me not looking for it. Uh, than anyone there there could be someone out there doing it but I'm gonna I guess I'm gonna plead ignorance because you in that get, respect you kind of get what you measure yeah or, or get what yeah. you inspire too right um, so we get in conversations a lot with people about the what is the impact of job growth and what is job growth and they're barely tracking what's happening with venues uh, let mm-hmm. alone what's actually happening with the non-venue based workforce mm-hmm. um, and then trying to figure out how how all those populations are being connected, rewarded, measured, and all that stuff is, I, I think, a structural question coming with the big changes in the sector is that there's so many more things, including technology-related jobs mm-hmm. um, that are and marketing-related jobs that are out there that may not be looked at by a city or as, as to its strength in communicating with its citizens what's possible with music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. What do you teach these wonderful 20-year-olds about, about music cities? What's pertinent to them for all this, this great conversation? Well, you know, like any college student these days, the first thing they want to know is, how will this help me? And the interesting thing is I don't know that they figure that out until about halfway through the class. What we do in the class is um, we uh, really use Denver as our laboratory. So we talk on one track in the class, they're learning about, you know, the rest of the world, the macro view of how music cities operate, how, how everything from how are they defined as a music city to um, how they can sustain a music economy, you know, cities everywhere. 
but we use Denver again as our laboratory by talking about the issues that we are addressing here and particularly the various people who are affecting uh, the changes here in the music economy. So we visit with these people personally. They come to our classes and we talk about what they do, what their role is, how they see it, how they see how they see the music economy here. And when I say Denver, I should be saying Colorado because we bring in folks from all over the area. Anyway, um, but I, as I said earlier, I think they realize about halfway through the semester that what they had been thinking about, and that is like, you know, showing up for a gig on time, performing and seeing, you know, what effect you can have in growing your fan base and things like that forgetting that world that's outside of that venue they're playing, that world that's outside of that practice space that they're utilizing. And I guess it opens up the idea of the music ecosystem to them that they're, and their role in it. And then by the end of the semester, I, I really think that they're starting to, they, they start to uh, realize uh, how they can not only be a part of that ecosystem, but also have a, have a responsibility to act in behalf of that ecosystem. In other words, involve themselves more than just making their money and their record sales goals and, and, their, and working with their manager and their booking agent, but more of how do I help other artists at the same time, or how do I help this city open more venues and develop more uh, practice spaces and give people like me an opportunity to have affordable housing. Does that make sense? So so they see that their role is bigger than just what they do on a Friday night. And those are things that seem to come up in a lot of the music cities conversations that it's not just having a good economic incentive program or doing things like um, the film business has and a lot of cities are doing tax breaks, but it's realizing some of the issues really are affordable housing. What is practice space? What's the economics of practice space? And also what's the economics of sort of community-based support? What happens with education? What happens with ongoing health services? And then what happens between uh, is a lot of the conversations. Are any cities doing this really well? Hmm. Yeah, they probably are. I just, I mean, I see best practices uh, here and there and, and uh, you know, it's a lot of little things. Is there one city that's checking off every box? Not that I can think of, but that's part of the beauty of it because as soon as they finish that list, we would give them another one. Right. Yep. So um, I can't think of one city that has nailed it. I, I, I think a lot of people would point at Nashville and say, you know, that they have certainly achieved a lot by the initiatives that they've undertaken throughout, you know, the last probably 30, 40 years. So I would say that one, you know, thing I would say, you know, that we know to be true is that it takes a long time and it takes constant review of where you are. So I don't know that anyone will ever nail it, you know, 100%, but the cities that can constantly look at where they are and where the opportunities are and address them efficiently and have an infrastructure that can af- af- address them efficiently. I think they're, they're going to be closer to that. Again, 
there's there's just some great things that cities are doing all over the world. So I have a question or two to kind of wrap us up. One is my lens on this, which tends to come back to, so if I can stream anything, almost anything, how does streaming impact the live music scenes and how do you look at that from your research and teaching? Mm. Wow. That's an interesting question. The, um, I mean, the, so the impact you mean to, to local economies of streaming, is that what you're... It could be. What, what we're seeing is lots of different things, and we're still asking this question a lot, and that's actually what drew me into the conversation myself, is I was taking a look at, okay, so as an artist, right, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping you know, some of the trite things said are, well, I'll make up my streaming revenue or my, my recorded music revenue... Uh, which is getting to be incredibly long tail, um, but I'll make it up in live performance. Well, how do you get a streaming audience to show up at a concert? What's the secret sauce to that is how I, some of my teaching actually, and some of the work mm-hmm. we actually do with artists and with venues in the Center for Music Innovation. But mm-hmm. on the bigger picture though, is is what are the big trends? Is it that you know we're finding some of the research, and again, this is early stage in a lot of this, is that your rabid fans still are rabid fans. Your stereotypical super fans are still attending, coming and drinking deeply from the well. But what happens mm-hmm. in kind of the next quartile? Are those folks passively streaming as their consumption of music? And, you know, the average person in the U.S., numbers I've seen, goes to two to three concerts a year. Mm-hmm. Does that average skew because of what people are doing? And, um, and I don't know what you're seeing in that because I, I do think that we've got some cities that are having really different things happening and you'd think streaming wouldn't be affecting cities differently. But I definitely heard from some folks doing research that in their city, no one wants to come and pay a cover charge because they can go home and listen to it. They want to be doing something different if they're going to be paying a ticket. Um, but in other cities in LA, you kind of expect you're going to have to pay something to show up or you're going to be you know, having a bar tab, but, but you're expecting that there isn't economics for music. We look at here and the fact that there's other revenue streams for artists here, which does help. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. who are involved in film and TV and a lot of other stuff. So that, that also robusts up the economy. But we're also then affected by streaming on video, that there's almost 500 shows being produced. So, that, so it's a more complicated question. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not a direct substitute, but most folks see streaming only continuing to grow. So mm-hmm. will that have an uh, impact on small town live performance or venues in New York City or where people decide to go live and work as artists? Yeah. Well, I tell you, I would unpack everything you said probably into two or three answers and, and they would be mostly anecdotal. I'm going to show my age here, but I remember when the, the VHS recorder came out and, and VHS took off, how the, the movie industry was going to be supposedly decimated and possibly killed off the theater, the theater business. You know, no one would want to go to a, to a movie theater when they could sit in the privacy of their home and watch a movie. Well, clearly that didn't happen, and nor did it happen when DVDs became ubiquitous, right? I think that, you know, they're two different experiences. And most recently, Coachella, you know, several years ago started 
broadcasting over YouTube or, or various video outlets to their festival, right? And uh, Coachella since then continues to sell out even before the lineup's announced, right? I think to, to any city who's thinking streaming's going to, you know, affect their live music industry, and it's not necessarily the city's responsibility, but the experience has to become, you know, for concert goers has to transform if, if you're going to compete with streaming, if you even want to call it competition. One genre that has this right right now is EDM. Again, maybe I'm showing my age here, but I would wager that a, a good majority of, of people who go to an EDM concert are not there to hear a specific song or to hear a particular mix. They're there for the experience. You know, they are also there to tell other people they're there. You know, it's, it's a, it, in their mind, it's a post on social media and Instagram um, of them being there as is Coachella for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it's at the at the end of the day, I I always have joked that I'd love to survey people coming from an EDM show and ask them to tell me one song that was played there. Just just a couple of titles, you know, and I doubt I doubt many people could do it. They're not bad people, that's just not why they were there. You know. So there's similar um, research on dry streaming that people are also not hearing or noticing the stuff that they've been sitting and streaming for hours that it yeah that it's not necessarily sticking at us remembering and uh, remember the artist though i would say uh, at, uh, at like coachella at edm or at an edm event you've got more happening with the dj mm -hmm. it's an interesting time it's an interesting time also is that a lot of new local businesses and other businesses that are all around this stuff what's your exciting work of the future what are you heading toward I am I am convinced there's still more to do with the music cities thing, but I'd like to get back to my, uh, you know, the the biggest reason why I got into this stuff is just I, I'm still fascinated by uh, what happens uh, in terms of popularity of particular artists and particular songs and and um, and the the transfer transfer transformation excuse me of all of that through the years. I've even done research into song lyrics and it's as yet unpublished, but it's, it's sort of sitting there waiting to be finished on, on how pop songs have changed as a result of mechanisms in the music business. For instance, you know what, and not to digress, but we're seeing it lately in songs like Old Town Road that are shorter, mm -hmm. much shorter. We, you and I know, and, and most people probably know that's a result of streaming and the business we're in that that song is shorter because that's the music consumer these days in a streaming environment whereas you know the average song was you know closer to three and a half to four minutes in the 90s as a result of radio programmers and and program directors wanting to use the first part of a song to do a, a mini commercial and talk into the song and then we you know prior to that it was almost a sin to have a song longer than three minutes so and some of that also coming from the the uh, 45 the size of the 45 also limited what you're able to do right and there are so many of these things that, and so that's that's a, a project that i would like to re um reopen at some point too so i, I still have a pull to my uh, geekdom 
happening. But for now, I, I'm I'm very interested in, frankly, getting more and more people to recognize the importance as part of their curriculum to uh, to letting students in music business programs know about this Music City stuff. I just termed out as president of the Music and Industry, <laughs> Music and Entertainment Industry Educators Association. I'm still very much interested in how we better prepare students who are interested in this business to be successful in it. So that's still a passion project as well. And this Music Cities thing is just a subcategory of that. For instance, I'm also interested in how we, you know, keep students in our programs and attract more. And, and when I say programs, I mean not just my own, but you know, throughout the US, because I, I think the future of the music business, of course, relies on uh, great people being put into positions in it. And uh, I think that's our mission as music business educators. So that, that's gonna occupy a lot of my time too. Excellent, so if someone wants to, uh, uh, if anybody wants to find your work or work specifically on music cities, where would you send them? I would say just Google me. <laughs> With a name like Storm Glory, you're probably not going to find the wrong one. Okay. The wrong person. And music city stuff overall, other than Googling music cities, any good centralized space to find for people to read up? Uh, same thing. I would just, I would just do a search and I'm, I'm hesitant to, uh, to identify any one uh, place as uh, so it might be understood that I favor them over one or the other. And um, so I'm Switzerland in that respect. <laughs> so um, especially coming from, uh, you know, being an academic, I want to remain Switzerland. So I would just always say, just, just look around because there's lots of resources out there. So we do have on the musicinla.org site a spreadsheet of all the stuff we could find, but not with the smaller cities. So that's a piece of the puzzle that would be interesting to add to a broader conversation. Any last things that you want to share before we wrap up today? Uh, none. Uh, thank you for having me. And this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot from you, Gigi. Oh, so dear. I appreciate it. Well, I always learn a lot from you and I'm very glad to connect up both to Mia and to you and, um, Look forward to your work in this really interesting area that impacts a tremendous number of people and also following what you are doing on the future of what we're doing with songs. That sounds quite exciting. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.